You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick. Instead, Rick became Marco Picota for this episode. Marco is a more Spaniardy version of Rick, who is... um, I don't, I don't know Rick well enough to say. <laughs> well, you know, you're definitely more Spaniardy. Marco is a, a friend of the podcast. He's been on uh, several times to talk about all sorts of things, and uh, we really appreciate you. You're you're a client of ours. You are, pleasure, uh, you know, yeah, you're a fantastic human and 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 great to <laughs> us. And you are really an expert in minis. You know, I, I will introduce you a little bit before I ask you to introduce yourself. But I mean, sure. you launched Legions of Steel, which was, you know, at the same time that uh, uh games workshop launched warhammer am i crazy or is that or you launched before i launched just uh, no they had already launched warhammer but you know space hulk was out for a little bit but it's 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 at the really the big growth period for gw so yeah we were going kind of okay. head to head they were ahead of us and of course they had literally tens of millions of dollars more <laughs> okay <laughs> so, yeah so but you you started your company in like 92 or 93 yes, right yeah way it back was like then. the same yeah. year as magic the gathering Yes. Uh, did you trade some legions for some magic cards and then yes no one knew how big magic was going to be and my box set of minutes is like the big box sets now like they're you know high-end uh, expensive games so i got like so many magic cards it was crazy <laughs> including Black lotuses but i didn't know at the time so they're gone that's not early well yeah so marco you've been up to all sorts of stuff but you've launched you know several successful projects but escape from stalingrad z was you know a kind of a breakout hit on Kickstarter. Now you've got this Paza known thing. I'd love if you would just kind of update our, our, our listeners on what it is that you do and what, what's coming down the pipeline for you. Sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I spent a couple of years, a few years after a, a 25 year hiatus to go back and develop games again. And um, I, I found it really suited me, and um, the, uh, I worked on some so, small Kickstarters of my own. And and then um, at one point, I was working on the histor- a historical game that grew into a historical zombie game, which was Escape from Stalingrad Z. It launched last year. It's been a year. It's starting to deliver. This week, actually, it's already been starting to deliver. So that Kickstarter fulfilled. It did really well. Uh, Post-Kickstarter continued to basically doubled my... Kickstarter sales over a year, so it did very well. Of course, it included miniatures, and and now we're launching the second game in that series called Escape from Project Riza, and and it's a sec, effect, effectively the second game in the series, it, similar to how you'd watch a movie. So you got the movie, you know, the original movie comes out, and then there's the sequel. So it's basically six months later. So it takes all of the stuff that worked for the first game. It, you know, if you know how to play the first game, you can play the second game. It takes all of that and it continues the story. And uh, and as, as far as how I like to create games, they're story-driven games, games that you actually unfold or what they call a narrative campaign. And um, uh, yeah, very excited. So this one we've completely developed, uh, working with Tom Frank closely. Uh, he's uh, and, and, uh, and tons of different uh, other freelancers. And it's looking great. It's the, the, the game's been written. The rules have been written. The scenarios have been written. The miniatures have been sculpted. <laughs> we're just doing editing, but we're releasing it. So uh, it, it's, it's going really great. And, and then this is just the second of uh, a long line of the games that we're going to create of the, the Paths Unknown series types of games, which use the book format as in you play the game on the actual book itself which is a spiral bound book that you open up flat, similar to Jaws of the Lion and some other games out there. So things are going great. We're really happy with the new stuff that we're creating and uh, basically plan two to three releases a year. And uh, another note of it is that actually they're created as solo games. So really specifically, I made a solo game and it did as well as it did as a solo game. Mm -hmm. So I think that's actually... that's a big testament because it was not – you can play co-op and you can also play uh, – you know, you can have a little bit of a versus mode, which is which, which, which works. But on the surveys and stuff, almost everyone bought it as a solo game. So, you know, it That's raised, awesome. you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars as a solo game. So I, I don't know exactly – that obviously says something about the industry, the gamers. Many of those gamers uh, obviously, you know, don't just play solo, but 
they accept this as a good solo game, a story. Yeah. So that's, I think, an indication in the, at least of some of how the industry is going. Yeah. You know, there's this uh, website called tabletopanalytics.com, which the team behind it is behind Vesuvius Media and Hive Interactive. They uh, have, you know, basically what I find is an, a more useful version of KickTrack. Um, right. If you're listening to this and you run KickTrack, you know, don't hate on me. I like yeah. KickTrack too, but I find that Tabletop Analytics has so much data. And there's actually, if you go in, you make an account, you'll see even more data. And then if you get certain permissions from Constantinos, which I don't have myself, but because Constantinos and I know each other, he shows me all the things. You can see all of the categories of every game that have launched on Kickstarter. And solo games are by far the most popular trend right now in, in all of, you know, in what's emerging on Kickstarter. And I find that solo is a huge, huge market that's just growing rapidly. And I'm kind of fascinated about it, but I mean, it's not the, I mean, I guess our topic really of uh, this podcast is not about solo gaming, but it's about miniatures and marketing. But I I have a feeling we'll, we'll drift here and there. Um, But I, I think that that's a really good point is that a solo game that's able to be played by, you know, one person that actually is meant to be played by one person or the experience is great for one person is, you know, really, really hot right now. I think that cooperative games lean very naturally into, you know, with enemy AI that is sophisticated and simple to, to run that, that type of thing leans very, or it just lends itself really well to solo experiences. But I, I kind of excited about all those solo games out there now. Well, me too. Uh, <laughs> you know, as I actually find myself really enjoying solo play, uh, when I when I can, I'll I'll actually play a solo game here and there. Uh, I find I feel it's almost like you know when you play a video game, you get into I don't know like I used to play MMOs really hard, so I would get sure. in. I I had a, always had a goal. You know the goal was I need to you know farm materials for raiding later, or I need to you know further this quest line, or I need to gain this item, or I need to you know raid or whatever. Um, sure. I feel like the the art the artistic expression in doing that was in being excellent at in combat. It's kind of really what it was, I think. Yeah. Or you know, just preparing and being super prepared. You know, you could take pride in the fact that you were prepared, you know, with your character. But if you were playing in in PvP or you know, your the artistic expression was going like twenty kills and one death. You know, and that was that was what I loved to do. And then in PVE, it was, you know, raiding or, you know, gaining loot and getting better items. It was also covering the story, right? Like the story was unfolding as you're playing it. So that that, that goes to the the point of like being narrative games as in it's a solo game, but it's a narrative game that's much Mm -hmm. closer associated with what what, um, computer games do. And -hmm. of course, those are a lot solo, right? Yeah. And you know what I find interesting about the, you know, when... What you don't do when you're playing a video game is think. It's like this, the crocodile brain in your head activates and then the neocortex that reasons and has rational thought and processes just turns off and you're just playing this experience. It's almost like you're at a slot machine playing. But when you're playing a board game, this tactile experience, you you actually think. And I believe you get smarter <laughs> when you're playing yeah. these things because you have to reason through problems. It's almost like a... I don't know. It's like a, a puzzle to figure out how not to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know definitely solo games. Uh, first of all, I think, you know, they've been around for a while, but they've come, I think they've come a long way. And I think a lot of people are applying their energies to creating them, which means we're going to get new and better AI type of functionality uh, for players. And um, you, I think a big thing with solo games is people can play them without like with a lot less stress. The competitiveness isn't there because you're just doing it on your own, you can take your time to play it. Uh, you know, you could be having your coffee at breakfast and, you know, just be just applying yourself to it without having to beat anyone else, right? You're kind of working on your own. Mm-hmm. And, and it's experience, it, it, it's a great experience. A good solo game is, is um, a really great experience. And what I like to call, you know, what you're trying to achieve as a designer is to create what I like to call like the player's journey, right? Like where they're going through the game and where they end up. And, it doesn't have to be a narrative game to have a player's journey, but I think what it's a, it's a useful way to think about 
when you're designing a game is, is what is the experience that uh, our players are going to go through? And um, I think the player's journey is a good way of kind of encapsulating that. You also have accessibility with solo games, don't you? Where I don't know if you've tried to organize a gaming night and it's yeah. almost impossible trying to get everyone on the same night at the same time. Yeah, uh, so there are memes the, about this. The accessibility of a solo game as well. I've got some free time. And as long as you have the space and uh, the, their, the drive to set that table a game, um, I think if you have a dedicated space, it's even better because you don't have to then set it down. You just come back. It's almost like a puzzle at that point where it's set up and you come to it and you kind of each day you do a little bit of the puzzle and then you you, you can go on with your life. And I think that's sort of where the solo gaming uh, mentality comes from. I frankly, in my, in my period of my life, don't have the ability to do that with young kids and having a dedicated space. Uh, so a lot of my gaming team seems to be orientated around uh, children so i get a lot of i play a yeah. lot of children's games or like very very simple board games it's kind of what I, I get to at this point in my life but i do enjoy solo experiences in a sense through reading novels or playing single player video games they're just far more accessible to me just because of my limited time and uh, energy <laughs> but yeah, you're sure. gonna go to the uk games expo you guys actually We're... might get to meet and shake hands yeah i can't imagine That's... we wouldn't so we originally invited you on um again or you 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 had a really great idea about just talking through how you leverage your miniatures in marketing. And, yeah. you know, I can just frame this for a second for our listeners. Yeah. The, the concept behind miniatures are that everybody is supposed to love them. You know, I mean, it's, it's almost like a, an axiom. Everybody understands the self-evident truth of if you make miniatures, your project will just make more money. It reminds me of the field of dreams analogy of if you build it, they will come. I would yeah. whisper into the microphone, but I don't think anybody wants to hear that. <laughs> so, but that's not necessarily the case because, well, first of all, you are going to spend a whole lot more money making them and then getting them shipped and all of that. And I believe that just making miniatures is not enough, but making great miniatures and, and making great miniatures is not quite as easy as one might um, expect, but um so there are really kind of a couple a couple of facets of the discussion I would really love to get into. One of them is the design and the look of miniatures that are attractive because you can't right. just make minis. If they're like 16 millimeter tall pawn looking people, that's very uninteresting. But then, you know, so how do you make good looking miniatures that kind of sell themselves? And then how do you actually use them in marketing? So I don't know which you want. Maybe we, we talk about the latter first. So let's assume you have good looking miniatures. How do you use them to sell your games or to build an email list or to do whatever you do? Sure, absolutely. Um, first, I'd like to say that, that you know, not all games are suitable for miniatures. So obviously it doesn't fit uh, what you thought, like miniatures fit every single, you know, kind of project that you might be doing. And certainly some people uh, in the industry and the, the indie de designers hate miniatures. So obviously I'm not trying to force anyone to do, use miniatures just because, you know, you can, you know, it, it they increase your chances of your game's success. But when we talk about miniatures, the way I look at it is that each miniature purchase, the sculpting of the miniature, the design, the sculpting, the actual painting of the miniature, and the gaming with the miniature, those four stages are all interconnected as a as potential routes of marketing all the way along. And, and I'll be more specific about it, but every single miniature that you decide to develop, you have an opportunity to share that on social media. And, you know, I think the biggest complaint a lot of people have is being able to find content for their social media that's engaging and that, you know, kind of matters. And I can tell you that making my games, I basically have content almost every single day and I, without having to think about it too much. And then aside from volume of content, of course, you want quality of content and good miniatures painted well look awesome. Just flat out look awesome. Everyone, you, they just go, wow, that's cool. And if you can get the wow, that's cool on a weekly basis, even because you're creating stuff that your fans feel is really cool. I mean, what would you pay for that? Like, it's like you, you, you almost can't you can almost, you, can, you almost can't put a value on it. But what the real the cost is the cost to actually sculpt a miniature and then to have it painted in that. And it's uh, my experience or, you know, I'm looking at the industry. It, uh, you can get a very good miniature sculpted and painted and everything for, I don't know what people consider expensive, but you know, uh, in, in the a thousand dollar mark uh, or less. So uh, when we, and talk what you're about, talking about is like resin 
printed uh, miniature, like on a 3D printer. I'm talking about the development cost, right? So not the actual yeah. uh, uh, cost of manufacturing. So your cost of manufacturing yeah. will grow as because you have more setup costs, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the idea is to raise that money through the Kickstarter. And, and I think we're more talking about a Kickstarter type project, okay? Um, I, uh, I've said it before on, on the on on the website, uh, I mean, on, in the groups in that, that Kickstarter is a tool of the indie. It's one of the most powerful tools an, an indie publisher can get, can have. And it does so much work for you, whether it's Kickstarter or GameFound now, although Kickstarter still leans towards the more, in, the, the newer newer people in the, who are, who are making games. Uh, it's super powerful. And, and if you take the time to develop your crowd, um, you know, it's going to really pay off for you in the long run. And it gives you the money you're going to need for the production part. So I'm not worried about producing them because I'm going to raise that money. So, I, you know, my objective is to raise the money and I'm going to raise it, period. Otherwise, why am I even doing this? So it's like, I'm going to raise X because that's how much I know. So that, that's, that's, that's the back plan. But the process to get there in between when you start to design your stuff, start working on your game, is you end up creating a snapshot along the way of all these different levels that you can use. So you've got, you've got, you, you can start sharing it out. We're working on a miniature. It's going to be like a post-apocalyptic warrior. You know, what kind of gun is he going to have or what, like, you know, you can kind of work with your crowd to kind of get them get ideas. Then you have sketches drawn up and those sketches you can share. So it's another really nice thing and people can start to see things coming together. Then they're going to actually sculpt it and you'll have a 3D rendering which you can share. And of course that's going to look really cool and everyone's going to think it's awesome. Then you're going to get it actually physically printed out, you know, in your prototype stage so they can see that and you can hold it up. And you've got that aspect of social marketing. Then you're going to get it painted and you're going to get it painted professionally and it's going to cost way more than you think it's going to cost, but it's worth every single penny. When you display that guy painted like this, you know, I've posted early on painted miniatures and I would, uh, you know, we, we, people would just be joining left and right all week long. Like they would just, this is awesome. You know, you just, it's really, really effective. And then after you shot, you <clears throat> posted stuff with your painted miniature, you can take it, you put it on your board, on your prototype board, you, you shoot it that way. You take other miniatures you've created, you put them together. I mean, you just can keep creating really cool stories. You can put them together and go, you know, Johansson's about to, you know, take out another zombie. And you, you just make little stories around every single post. And literally hundreds and hundreds of posts that you can create. Each one with a with quality though, right? And and mm -hmm. and yeah. anyways. And there, there's a story behind each one. I feel like what you're saying right now is so important because a lot of people are going to ask the question, "What? well, you know, I have the miniatures or when I have the miniatures, I will just show them. You know, I took a picture. There they are. Everybody yeah. sees them. And that's actually, you know, it's funny because as a designer, when you're making something, you know, even myself with Deliverance, I have yeah. sold, you know, maybe 4,000 units of the game at this point. And I have all the miniatures and, and everything like that. I see them all the time because I'm working on them, working on the art. I'm working on the, you know, whatever the game. And I actually don't, you know, I, I, I find that I feel like my backers in some, in some ways, they have the exact same experience as me. They know what the game is. They've, it's like, they've played the game before. I kind of talk to them like that. And then so often they tell me, and I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded that they actually have never actually seen this game except for the pictures that I've sent them. And right. they're really excited to, but they have no idea how the game really works. They have no idea how, you know, the, the, what the story is about. They, they just see the pictures that I've sent them and no more. And also, you know, I can write paragraphs and paragraphs. Sometimes some of my updates are quite long with, you know, strategy and tactics or talking about the various characters, but it's hard to like digest that information and internalize it like I do as the designer, because sure. I deal with this all the time, but they're looking at all sorts of different projects. They have whatever's going on in their life. And the only thing that my entire existence is boiled down to in their, in their world is just a few pictures and maybe yeah. some text that they retain. Yeah. And so what you're saying is that you, there are so many opportunities to actually craft stories because that's really what we're playing games for. That it's almost like playing a book is what you're doing, you know, with these narrative games. Yeah, with the narrative games, and I like to say that the stories, even in non-narrative games, it's the stories you tell about your experience. Like, oh man, you should see, man, I was about to do this, and then he did that, mm -hmm. and it's those are the you know yep. the ones that you share with your buddies and stuff like that. And some of them, as you guys probably know, and your listeners don't, you know, some of them transcend decades. Like, remember <laughs> when? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, pull out, yeah. 
That's so cool. Yeah, I actually, you know, I had a, the other day I had a backer that was playing the game, or a deliverance on tabletop simulator, and he was playing a certain boss. And as he took the very last swing to kill the boss, the boss counterattacked him and killed him too. So, you know, it was, you, you win the game by slaying all the demons on the battlefield, but you lose if the demon, if, if all the angels die, right? If all the angels are defeated in combat. So they were both defeated at the same time. And he, he asked like what, you know, on our discord, what happened? Did I win or, or not? And then we had this huge theological discussion afterward between all the members of, uh, you know, well, you're an angel and you just defeated the last demon. Yeah, you were defeated, but your mission is accomplished. So of course you win. And uh, I just, I just thought that was super fun. And it was, it's like, you're right. The stories we tell ourselves are the things we remember. It's not like, oh, I rolled a six and I dealt four damage and then he dealt me three damage. That's not the story you tell. It's the, you know, I swung my sword and slayed him and he stabbed me in the side as I did that. And, and we both fell over, but mission accomplished, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think all, 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 most gamers can relate to that. And, and uh, you know, I, I just, Humans in general, I think we're story hungry, pe- uh, you know, beings. I think stories is what uh, it's kind of like mm-hmm. everything almost, right? I mean, it's what engages us and makes us happy, and, and you know. So the 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 quick takeaway from this whole section is, um, when you share on social media or when you're taking pictures, think about a little snapshot of the story, and just yeah. take a picture of like an action shot and tell a one or two line story as your social media post. Post that either in your group or a, you know, maybe a community page for Facebook or Discord or whatever. Yeah. And uh, that that actually has, that will that will gain you traction. You'll be able to point them back to your website. You'll be able to gain new emails, you know, during your actual Kickstarter campaign. It will provide buzz. And that's, that's kind of my takeaway. You talked about having great painted miniatures. I don't know if you yeah. would be able to recommend any, anyone or any group that does a real stellar job in terms of painting miniatures that other people could look up if they are thinking of going down this road. Absolutely. Uh, Well, I'm based in Europe. I'm a Canadian guy living in Spain, enjoying the more relaxing lifestyle that we have here in Southern Spain and and 300 days of sun. Uh, (laughs) But so the point is that I use the Europe, some European guys. Uh, I, I haven't used any American. I'm sure there's a there's many. The two that I've used, Den of Imagination is one set, and you can you can pay it as different levels to get different qualities. And the other one is Cast of Colors. Both of them are out of Poland. Again, there also you can you can work with them at different levels to do different uh, different qualities of of. Uh, but basically, my I would say with a you know you'd want to spend around a hundred plus per miniature. If you want to get a level of miniatures, and if you go, if anyone here wants to see the quality, you take a look at, at uh, my games, and you'll see kind of the level that you get at that at that uh, at that price. But that's kind of what you need to really get a wow factor out of it, right? So it's mm-hmm. not cheap, but okay. This is something maybe I didn't say before, but basically, I look at miniatures as marketing. I don't look at it as the cost to you know create the game. I look at it as marketing opportunity. How much am I investing in marketing? And of course, everybody's got their comfortable level. You know, some people may not have the uh, you know availability of money that they can go down the miniature road and, and develop it. But if you're like, okay, you know, I'm willing, to, uh, I'm going to take. First of all, I believe it takes years, and Andrew knows this. You took three or four years before you even launched your game, of which you spent very little money on advertising until it became more of a uh, you know closer to its creation, right? So yep. uh, what we're looking at is, you know, am I going to do? I want to spend you know, $200 a month, what are $300 a month? Am I going to, you know, going into the last year up ramping up, do I want to spend, you know, 3000 or 4000 or 5000 or, you know, some people have more money, $10,000. So now you're going to look at that money and you're going to, and if, and if you have enough to do miniatures, it's going to, it's, it, it just creates so much material for you to do it. And, and, and that's how I look at it. So I look at miniatures as, a, as part of my marketing budget. That's exactly yeah. how I look at it. Yeah. That is just a bonus that I get to sell them. in terms of selling them do you ever sell the ones that have been painted that you use the marketing is that something that you offer in a pledge at some stage or do you sell on your store or do you give it away to a super fan or how how do you then leverage those painted miniatures after the campaign well those those are all assets that i will continue to use throughout the you know marketing of the game which is long beyond 
the actual Kickstarter launch and even long beyond that. My, my game is designed to, I mean, I want it to be, it's going to be available. We're going to keep, because we're creating a story that is from one game to the next. And it's like movies, like sequels and prequels and stuff. You know, the first game will always be uh, marketed as well. So I'm, I, I keep them for myself. And uh, as far as selling them, uh, I just put people onto to the guys who I use because like uh, if I'm going to have to mark it up, what you need to do just because it's just, then it's going to be extremely expensive. And I, I, and if I don't, and if I make them at a cheaper cost, which, uh, which I can do, I just don't feel that it justifies the miniatures a good enough quality that I want to actually sell. So I just encourage people. I say there's, there's many different avenues you can go to get it painted. These are some of the places you can go, just go on their website and they'll just do it for you. And, and you don't have to, I don't have to be the middleman and, you know, they're going to pay the ship to me or maybe it goes to you. And I don't know, there's a whole bunch of rigmarole involved. So as far as miniatures are concerned, I keep them and I keep using them throughout, you know, the life of the product, which is for me, I hope will be decades. And uh, yeah, that's how I handle those. Uh, but if you're that's asking whether you can recoup your money back, if, if you have the right audience that's growing, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be able to recoup your money and sell it for at least what you paid for it. I would say no problem. If they're really good looking miniatures, really well painted, someone will be out there who's willing to pay for them. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And you know, what I find is that they, they're a real nice hook to selling my actual game. So I actually told my audience that we were not going to do miniatures. I was like, all right, yeah. the, you know, I was, I, I thought about it. I was like, all right, this is going to add a lot of unnecessary expense because I am a first time designer creating a, creating my, you know, my, my baby project, the Holy grail game that I really wanted to see enter into the world. And I just wanted it to go well. I didn't want to have to fuss over miniatures because everything that I've heard from everybody, uh, including you, Marco, is that they basically are going to add six months to your project. You know, I didn't and... say that. Actually, when you asked me, I go, man, you should do Oh, miniatures. yeah, you told me. <laughs> That's yeah, what yeah, I said. Yeah. You should do the miniatures. You're going to sell like so much more. Yeah. So many people, you know, really encouraged me to go forward. And, you know, in the end, I ended up caving and, and, and producing miniatures because uh, for two reasons. Number one, my fans were just beating my door down for miniatures. They ev I mean, constantly, every single post I made, they were so excited about the art and they were like, is this going to be a miniature? You know, all the time, tons and tons of different fans were like, I would, I would love these as miniatures. And all of the, you know, Sam Healy was like, you know, I have two feet, two bits of feedback about your game. Number one, it feels like a Frank Peretti novel. Like I'm, I'm playing this present darkness. Number two, this game would sell with miniatures and I was like, okay, you know, but all right. And yeah. then, uh, you know, the other, the other thing was uh, I actually had a really great connection just kind of come across my lap where one of my very motivated fans uh, was, you know, I said, I know a guy that, you know, works uh, freelance for Dungeons and Dragons and Warhammer creating sculpts for them. Yeah. Um, would you like that connection? I was like, okay, let's explore it. And, and it was expensive. I mean, for me, it was $400 to design a sculpt right. after my art was finished. I sent the art over and that kind of thing. Yeah. They, we designed sculpts and then, it, you know, the metal plating or we, I forget the, what it's exactly called, but the molds, we had yeah. to create steel molds. We they're had to create uh 12. They're called injection molds. Yeah. Yes. So we had to create $12,600 worth of injection molds yeah. for my nine angel miniatures. So I spent 400 bucks on each miniature that was times nine. Then, uh, so 3,600 and then, uh, you know, and we did also metal coins and whatnot, which is about another 400, uh, between the two different metal coins. So about right. $4,000 on our, on our sculpting. Then we had a uh, $12,600 in plastic mold, you know, injection molding, um, and molds had to be created. And then, which I have some interesting stories on that uh, if we have time. Yeah, but but, but um, let, me, let me stop you there a sec. The molds you're not paying for until you sold the game. So you're creating miniatures which are going to make the molds that you're going to have sold the miniatures for that pay for the mold. So I, I would never put that into the equation because mm -hmm. I've already paid. For, as far as I'm concerned, I'm making a game with miniatures. Those molds are paid because I'm going to raise yeah. that money, right? So yeah, you absolutely. Your four, you got your 4K investment. Right. And so the, I guess the, the, you know, I had to figure out what the pricing was. It was about $13,000 for creating these things. I need to build into the actual, uh, I can't fund this game unless I raise that money kind of thing. Yeah. And then once the, uh, all of the, you know, once those molds are done, the cost per game. So I have nine miniatures at roughly 35 millimeter scale. That would be yeah. from feet to the feet to eyes. 
I've heard is 30, you know, 35 millimeters. That's the scale. Cool. And yeah. And so a lot of my angels were like, you know, 75 millimeters tall because they're wings and everything, you know, but, um, the, uh, the, the, the cost for doing that, it's, it's, I can't remember the exact number, but it ranges between $2 and like $2 and 50 cents for a set of those to go into my game. So it's, it's around $2 and 50 cents for, for the game. And those miniatures, you know, multiply that cost times six. And that's really what you need to increase the MSRP of your game by. So two bucks and 50 cents times six, it's $15 more to, to sell a game with miniatures versus without. Um, yeah, and, but people will gladly, well, you've obviously been well enough to show that the people gladly spend it. And, and if I can mention something here, this is a very, it's very specific how I think is it, a, a, a good way to make your game and launch your game, which includes miniatures. And this is part of the process. And what I did and what I'd recommend anyone to do is have your game kind of in three stages, right? So you create a game that's, uh, what I do is I created a travel set. Mm-hmm. Okay, that will retail for $30. And this is the, all the writing, everything, you know, you need to play the game, except, you know, you print out the character sheet, and you've got to get your own dice, the $30 product, then I create a box set that does not include miniatures include standees, that product, you take the travel set, you put it, you drop it into a box, and then add the extra stuff that dies the little tidbits and all the other nice little cool things and standees and doors with standees, you put that into a box set. Now you got a $60 box set, which is, you know, fairly common. Uh, well-priced game in our market and then like everyone knows in kickstarters you gotta you gotta you, you want to have at least a hundred dollar mark of what you're selling on average right so you then you take your set that's the miniature set and that becomes the deluxe set and that you can sell for mine uh, was over 150 dollars and i sold a lot of them so you know i you know i i have uh th- that one had 29 miniatures so let's say it would cost double what yours was costing. And then you look at, you know, the extra money I was selling it for. I mean, there was other things in there too. You know, it's well, well worth it. It's well worth it. And then the bonus on that is that I made little box sets of the miniature so you could totally buy it separately. And what yeah. that does is you've got, so you've got a, you know, you can buy the hero set for $35 or you could buy like the boss set for like 20 bucks because it's three miniatures. And so I have four different sets. And then what happens is people can buy in at $30 and decide to, get a small set of miniatures and you end up capturing the entire level of what willing a pe- what, what the amount of money people are willing to spend. I'm willing to spend 30 bucks. I'm willing to spend 50. Okay. That's the thing. Plus the small miniature pack. I'm willing to spend 60. That's the box set. I'm willing to spend hundred. Well, that's the box set plus just these two miniature packs. Well, I want to spend more. So you can, you, you really, everyone gets to, to, to buy in at a comfortable level that works for them. So you don't lose anything in between. Cause if you're going from game like 60 bucks to 150 bucks it's like yeah you, you know i might spend 90 but i ain't gonna spend 150 so mm-hmm. i'm giving the ch- opportunity to the to the um consumer to kind of buy how they feel is best for them and making miniatures really allows you to scale that though so you're talking about introductory copy you're talking about a box set you're talking about deluxe set and then you've got these miniature set boxes that are available separately that allow them so that's another extremely dynamic and effective way of kind of raising as much money as you can to, you know, make your dreams come true. And I, and I suppose with those miniature box sets, you're also then expanding your demographic because you're not can target people who just want to paint them. They might just they be catching and you're, you're capturing those kind of hobby level painters or it's just general war gamers. You think they look cool. They want them in their collection. So they might not be buying or backing your project because they want to play the solo game you've developed. They might just be doing it simply because they want to get these miniatures. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to say something else too. If you're a, if you're creating a game without miniatures and you in, decide to introduce miniatures into that game before you launch, so like, okay, I'm going to do miniatures you expand your market base like the amount of more people that will be interested in your game grows a lot so just by introducing miniatures you're going to end up having more eyeballs on your product because there will be uh like you said quite a few people who are interested in the product because of the miniatures so you're gonna you're, and then not only that it allows you like when you're doing your social media when you're going on to onto facebook and whatnot and different groups, you now can start talking about your game in like way more different groups. You know, legitimately, you can talk about your product and what you're doing and your design process in miniature groups. And of course, that also expands your reach. And, and when you post to a miniature group, a really well-painted miniature, like everybody react, like, like every, you know, 
whether they actually like it or not, you get a lot of people looking at it. So it's really powerful. Uh, again, not for everybody, because you know, if you hate miniatures, don't, don't make a game with miniatures. But if your game, if you're using tokens, if you're using meeples to move around and do stuff, you know, you can switch that out for a miniature and a lot of people will like it. Another thing yeah. I'll quickly add is that one thing I've noticed with Facebook ads that when we target wargaming interests, Games Workshop, 40K, Mantic Games, these old interests, even hobby level painting. But what's interesting is that that often produces very good results. And I think the reason is, is because those demographics, those demographics of users are used to spending lots of money on tabletop experiences. They're, they're sort of at a, they sort of understand the ecosystem of tabletop games and they, they're, they're willing to spend more money on their tabletop hobby than maybe someone who's maybe interested in party games or even board games. I think people who are in the war gaming space are used to throwing 150 bucks to get like a starter army, you know, and like a little codex or something to start playing their, their game. Um, so in one way, it's, it's a great way for targeting um, tabletop gamers, but who also are willing to spend more. So something to keep in mind when you are running Facebook ads that it's still worth targeting war gamers, even if you don't necessarily have a war game because war gamers will be interested in general tabletop games. Mm -hmm. They just are general tabletop gamers who are willing to spend more. So that's something to keep in mind. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they definitely spend, like their hobby, uh, you know, uh, the, if the experience is Games Workshop, then they spend a lot of money. And, and like they'll spend like easily $30 plus on a single miniature, even of course they're like GW does produce awesome miniatures. Like, yep. So yeah. the people are willing to spend the money for sure. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the time those people are not on Facebook, but you know, the, a lot of the people that spend are people that are busy at work, making money and then coming home, they play their, they are their hobbies, family, you know, that kind of thing. And many of them are not on Facebook and uh, you know, it's kind of an aside, but marketing into the ones that are on Facebook is a really cool way to influence the ones that are not because they travel in packs. People that play war games or people that play board games travel in packs. So we found that Facebook marketing, you know, even for, for deliverance, many people that backed the game were told by a friend and, you know, the friend found, you know, has another buddy at, at, at the small, at small group or at, at church or at, you know, whatever his sports thing that he does or school and they do like they game together. And so it's what you're looking for when you're marketing, you're not looking for the necessarily like the end user and to, you know, even further, you're looking at, at Kickstarter. Most people that buy games actually don't buy them on Kickstarter. I want to say Kickstarter makes up less than 5% of board game sales and uh, yeah dominantly you're going to you're going to find you know local game stores amazon you know all of that put together just crushes kickstarter in the number of sales but what you're going after are you going after the alphas the alpha gamers i call them where they are the early adopters is is another phrase that that would be used to describe this group only about 2% of a of a market typically is an early adopter so in theory with deliverance you know we sold 4000 units so far i produced 5000 um, I want to say we sold like 3,600 games and a bunch of add-ons and whatnot. But um, I sold to that 2% that were willing to be the innovator, the early adopter, and test the game. So if 3,600 is only 2% of my potential sales, the, you know that's that's excellent, right? And we just have to figure yeah. out how to kind of tap in to that to that re the rest of that group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need your early adopters for sure, and and. Kickstarter gives you that avenue that you can go. I, I couldn't, I used to, so just to be, I used to design games back in nine, in the nineties. There was no Kickstarter. There was no social media. There was like nothing, man. And we were like, <laughs> we were doing cons. We were doing like uh, distributor open houses, even to convince distributors to carry you was hard back then, but there was no, it was not even really email. I mean, I think there was email. It was like, like it was a, Kickstarter is an awesome way to get those adopters on board. And it's true. They will speak to their friends. And the thing is with war gamers is that, uh, war, you know, that's the type of thing that you really have to make time for because war games often uses a large amount of space 
and it's usually at a store, you know, uh, and I mean, it's often at a store, so people go there to play. So the chance that your product will get exposed to other war, uh, war gamers and other potential is, is big because they're getting together every week or two and they're like putting a lot of time into their games. So, you know, they're serious, basically, like serious gamers, you know what I mean? Like, you know, another, another way that we use to market miniatures, um, the key word is, or the key phrase is stretch goals. I, I wonder what is your philosophy on using miniature sculpts as a stretch goal? My concern is that I have this really cool thing, you know, so we'll use an example from my, from my campaign. I have sure. all nine angel miniatures. I got all of them sculpted. In fact, the last one was in the middle of being sculpted during Kickstarter. And we were finally able to reveal that miniature, you know, in the last week of the campaign, I was like yeah. hoping that it would be done in time and all of that. And Thankfully, we were able to get it done, but um, I decided to put my angels as stretch goals. Five of them were in the game, and then four additional angels with their miniatures were stretch goals, quote unquote. Right. But it was a game right. where all of them had been paid for. I never asked for a quote that didn't include the nine angel miniatures that didn't, in, you know, from my manufacturers. Right. Um, I always planned to include them, and I was just kind of hoping that they would all be unlocked in via stretch goals. And so... Um, I was wondering, like, do you ever potentially design a miniature, sculpt it out, and then not include it in a game because you didn't knock the stretch goal down? Or what is your philosophy in in leveraging miniatures through the stretch goal system? Do you what what advice would you give? I don't like miniatures and stretch goals. For us indie small guys, it's really tough. One thing, if you want to introduce them, is you would uh, your game. If your game includes, you had all like original sculpts for your nine 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 uh, angels, so that each one's its own thing. Now, I had original sculpts for my heroes, but I had like beta zombies and armored zombies, of which there was multiples, right? So that you've already paid all the upfront cost. You pay, you know, you're going to be paying for the molding on that. So that's a little bit easier to add as a stretch goal because I'm already manufacturing that. And when I added those to my game, the extra ones of the beta zombies or the, uh, that's genuinely, I was genuinely adding them to it, right? So the game, the deluxe version comes with all, you know, all you need to play, including the, what ends up being, ended up being 33 zombies. Well, actually, so yeah, with, with the 27 zombies that you need. And then I just added more through stretch goals. So my philosophy is that, that it's, it's a, it's a, it, an easier task to use existing miniatures that you have multiples of as a stretch goal thing. Cause you could, you don't have to spend any more money designing, developing and doing that. So that's, I would do that. If you're doing original stuff, I wouldn't attempt that as an indie designer because it's, it is very expensive and it's a lot, it's risky and it's, you know, hard. You kind of have to do it in advance. Cause who's going to care if a stretch goal is like, you know, if you don't can't show it, it's just not as effective. Right. So, um, Stretch goals in general, I think what people, uh, consumers, and I've got this quite a bit, is like, why do you even bother putting stretch goals when you know you're going to add it? Like, they're kind of almost blaming us designers, you know, why would you do that? And and it's a valid point to make is like, you, you know, you're going to put that in already. So why are you making a stretch mm -hmm. goal? And sometimes it can be valid. And it's all about building hype. So it's just this, look, at, I, I know I know that I'm doing that, but it's part of the marketing of the game. And yeah. I can't help it. I, I need every penny we can develop, right? Um, and I understand that, but many of them are genuinely like, I ain't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to increase my cost by X amount of dollars on paper or whatever. If I don't, you know, until I sell enough that it reduces the price to, you know, in a way that that kind of compensates, which you're, you're looking at your economies of scale, right? What I'm doing this time, which I didn't do the first time is that, uh, for example, uh, other than miniatures, there's other things you can use a stretch goal. So one thing I had as a stretch goal was a, a double layered uh, character sheet, you know, with the little holes where everything fits in really neatly, and they look awesome, and I love them. And not everyone loves them, but I love them, and a lot of the consumers love them. The first time I added it as a stretch goal, and it was a legitimate stretch goal. I, it cost a lot more money to do them, and I was going to add them as a stretch goal with the one coming up. But in the end, I'm like, I, I, I know I really want to add this. I really love it. I I would be sad if I didn't. So I just made it work so that I added it right at the beginning, so everyone's going to get that. So I, I think. I think um, that I don't know if now I'm too convoluted to to have made a, a think, accurate statement, but but basically, well, it's not it was, a simple topic, yeah, is it? It's not simple. Right? So the idea is, as much as possible, figure out what your what your your uh, 
uh, your economies of skills are to do legitimate stretch goals. Don't do original sculpts like uh, as stretch goals as an indie publisher. Mm -hmm. But if you do do miniatures and you have multiples, maybe you can add those, and that makes sense and it's and it's economical. I know one thing you did, Marco, is that you actually surveyed your email list about stretch goals, and the results were quite surprising because there was quite a divide, wasn't there? As far as I remember, of yeah. people's opinions, and a lot of people didn't even care. It's not even on their radar, which I thought was surprising. I thought it was going to be either they love it or they hate it, but there seemed to be a wide range of opinions when it came to stretch goals. I don't, I don't know if you want to speak into that. And then maybe um, is there anything else that you've discovered through your surveys that have come up that surprised you? Okay. So regarding uh, stretch goals, uh, um, uh, the, the survey had uh, 120-odd ans people that answered it. Almost all of those people... Uh, you know, had backed uh, Kickstarters and, and most of those people had backed uh, at least three. So there was, a, they were like, you know, they were diehards. And um, uh, uh, I was only like 20, 30% of them really said, I want, you know, miniatures of stretch goals. More of it, more people, at least for the game I was designing, which was a narrative campaign, wanted more scenarios, more story more uh, upgrading quality of the of the components and of course you had a, you know a, a fair portion that also wanted more miniatures but it wasn't all about the miniatures it was a, really about the overall quality of the game both with its physical components as well as the story that was going to evolve and that they could experience right so what are we doing when we're making games what are we really doing we're telling stories whether it's a narrative game or whether it's um, you know, which it's a game that we play that we that we have uh, 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 things happen that we can tell stories about. And so, what is that? That's an experience. So, like we're selling an experience. So, what I think the backers are saying is, we want you to give us a better experience, more experience. We want, but not always necessarily the physical tangible. We want to make it good, of course, but we also want to just have more enjoyment. You know, it's like those little extras that you get at the end of the superhero movies or whatever. You know, that gives that little extra little funny bit or whatever that then takes you into the next one you're like oh that was good yeah and you sit around literally waiting like i don't know five minutes sometimes oh, to see that stupid thing. <laughs> so obviously people care and they like it and they want that and so that's what i found out with that regarding like what was surprising was that uh, in my case anyways 45 percent of the people were came from kickstarter so it's like I mean, we did have word of mouth and we did have our advertising, but I thought it was a lot higher percentage because a lot of people talking about Kickstarter is not like, you know, really, you know, how much are they really giving you, right? Like, and we don't know for sure. And maybe they're skewing it a little bit, but at least for my guys, and I'm talking, there was like 900, there's 900, you know, it wasn't like a hundred even, it was like 900 people responded to this thing. And um, yeah, it was 45%. So for me, whatever the algorithm was or however that worked, that worked out you know, quite well uh, uh, for me. So that was the biggest surprise that I thought, you know, obviously Kickstarter would bring some good, uh, you know, some good people to the table, but it was more than I anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I also ran a survey and we, we talked about this in a past episode. Uh, maybe we could link to that in the show notes. But um, one of the things that I, that I asked was what would you like to see most in the deliverance expansion? And you can mm. select all that apply. And, and uh, you know, some people gave, you know, their own answers, but, in general, the ones that I listed, the number one thing actually surprised me. It was they wanted over 300 people, it was 317 out of the 519 people that responded said that they wanted more campaign missions. Yeah. And that actually, I, I figured they'd want more angels, which was at, at you know, early on, that was like our number one, but it, it, more campaign missions actually by far beat everything else. It's like, dang. Yeah. Um, yeah. People you know, want more angels, experience. demons. Yeah, but they want, yeah, the was... they want the journey. They want that journey. Mm -hmm. The same thing you get from looking at a movie, same thing you get from reading a book and un, you know, un, you know, uh, revealing, you know, the different plots and who killed who yeah. or you know, and all that sort of thing. People, that's what it's kind of what almost what entertainment is based on. And I want to just say one other quick, and I know we're going on time here, but I, 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 I you know, if you're working on an expansion, uh, first of all, is it a standalone expansion? Like, do you need to have the base game? Uh, you do need to have the base game in this okay. case, but the next one okay. after that's going to be standalone where you want. Yeah. I totally, if anyone was going to add, I go like push your games to be standalone. If you're not like, you're going to be releasing them six months apart, right? It's going to take time. So I think it's, mm -hmm. everyone's going to be happy enough to get it like the next set. Uh, I, now, now you won't, if it's a standalone game that is part of a story, it was what, 
they're going to want to buy the first one anyways, especially if you know, they play and go, this was great. Now I got to buy the first one. So you're not losing out. But what you are doing is you're able to capture people at the moment with the product that you have right now without forcing them to have another obligation, right? They're just like, I can just mm -hmm. buy this right now. And in my system, it's like a, a $30 buy and you get an awesome game. So I can do that right now. And the other way is like, I can do it right now, but I'm going to have to buy that game. And, you know, I, I, and if they're thinking twice, maybe, you know, 70% do, but then you're going to lose 30. Like there's a percentage you're going to lose, right? So my opinion is in general, if you can just do standalone stuff, it, it's a more powerful tool, I think. That's, mm -hmm. that's just my opinion on that. I think that's a great point. That way you're making your game accessible to everybody else that, you know, maybe it, is looking at it for the first time where they buy this one first and then they, they buy the classic, you know, base, yeah. base game or the original. So Marco, as we um, come in for a landing, do you want to just yeah. finish up summarizing maybe the, the top three key points of why someone should consider using miniatures in their game design moving forward. So that might just be a nice way to wrap things up by focusing sure. on the top, top three elements of why people should use miniatures. Absolutely. So miniatures allow you to create, a ton of really good content when done correctly. So it's a, a lot of content. Miniatures allow you to access a market that a non-miniature game would never, would have less chance of getting to. So now you can market more to war gamers in the miniature market segment, which is big and it's worth it. And lastly, uh, what miniatures allow you to do is to create levels in your, in your Kickstarter, or even if it's just going straight to retail, however, where people can purchase at a game without miniatures at one price point and then a game perhaps with miniatures at another and in between some box sets that allow you to allow the consumer to kind of spend what they're comfortable with and 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 they'll spend as you know you'll you won't lose any money out because they're going to be buying it wherever makes sense for them and if you're the more options you give it the closer you're going to get to capturing every dollar you know, thank you as always for joining our podcast and uh, for the for the wisdom that you have. Before we go, would you share about what your you know just the project that's that you're working on? I believe you're going to Kickstarter pretty soon. You know, can you can you share with our our listeners? Sure. Uh, absolutely. So the newest game I'm doing, the second game in the uh, in the Path, Paths Unknown kind of series of game is called Escape from Project Riza, and it's a sequel to the first game, Escape from uh, Stalingrad Z. And it's a game that uses a book format where you play on, uh, you play right on the book and uh, has a narrative campaign. It's kind of a choose your own adventure style. It's a weird World War II zombies, Nazis, and, and you know, your, your heroes, you know, busting into a underground Nazis place and taking out everything you can before you get taken It was out. real. It's a, it's a, it was a real Nazi underground base. Like yes, you're, you're basing it, it in history, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's based on an actual underground base called Project Riza, uh, Rise, Riza uh, that existed during World War II. Riza means giant, by the way, so it's Project Giant. Mm -hmm. And they were like four different complexes underground that did all kinds of stuff. And uh, there's not, they're not sure why they all existed or what they were doing there. A lot of the stuff was burnt, so we never will know. And I just took that and just put it into, you know, my game and, and the That's game amazing. that we're working on. Yeah, yeah. If, uh, if you're into war games plus zombies, which I think yeah. everybody, I mean, I, I, it's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, uh, cool, man. I appreciate your time and your, uh, your wisdom. Thank you so much, Marco. And we're going to have Robot Richard send us out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.